Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Nalpathangel. When the most powerful person on the planet declares you an enemy, it's hard to not become defensive. As President Trump's administration continues to lambast the industry, plenty of news outlets have gone out of their way to tell you about the importance of journalism and how badly it's needed for a democracy to thrive. Which of course is true, but it's also true that journalism has a lot of growing up to do. In this time of fake news and hyper-partisanship, it's also time for some self-reflection. Later this hour, we'll talk about the challenging relationships between the scientists who research politically charged topics and the journalists who cover them. We'll also talk with a journalist who calls on reporters to seek stories that, quote, complicate the narrative. But first, we're going to talk about what drives us to believe certain things and ignore other things, despite mounting evidence to the contrary. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WNPR.org. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us from the studios of Yale University in New Haven is Dr. David Grand. He's an associate professor of management science and brain and cognitive science at MIT, formerly a professor at Yale. Dr. Rand, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So while you were at Yale, you and a colleague, Gordon Pennycook, had published several studies about the psychology behind fake news, including a forthcoming paper on the susceptibility to partisan fake news. But I want to talk about, before we get into your work, I want to just sort of lay out for some for listeners uh, some of the things that go um, into, that some of the, 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 uh, um, the patterns that uh, we see with people believing certain things. Now, of course, people believe things for a variety of reasons, how they grew up, where they grew up. But I want to, can you just talk about, um, um, like, how do people get ideas into their head that don't mesh with the facts, and how and why do they continue to believe those things, even when they're presented evidence to the contrary? Can you just talk about some of the factors that are at play with people when they, when they confront things that challenge their beliefs, but they continue to just believe what they believe? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about this question. Um, the particular lens that the work that I've been doing sits in is uh, thinking about the the role of sort of automatic, intuitive uh, ways of understanding the world versus more conscious, deliberative, reasoning-based uh, ways of understanding. And so to some extent, uh, sort of false or incorrect beliefs are often in- initiated uh, through uh, intuitive processes like uh, something feels compelling, you're told it by you know some people, you see it in the world, whatever. <clears throat> you come to have this uh, this understanding of the way things are. And then the question is, as you get new information, uh, what do you do with that information? And so what we'll think of as like the sort of classical reasoning perspective says what reasoning allows you to do is improve the accuracy of your beliefs. So when you're presented with new information, you reflect on that information, you think, how should I update my beliefs based on this? And you shift in the direction that's uh, suggested by the evidence. And that tends to uh, lead you towards sort of true or correct beliefs. Um, And that's sort of in general the way people think about and talk about uh, reasoning. 
But there is an alternative uh, kind of reasoning that happens that has been getting a lot of attention recently, particularly in discussions around um, politics and misinformation and things like that, which is called motivated reasoning. And so in motivated reasoning, instead of using your reasoning abilities to inform your beliefs, uh, what you do is you use your reasoning abilities to sort of justify the beliefs that you already have, or you sort of reason towards rather than the goal of accuracy, you reason towards some other goal, uh, like perhaps protecting your identity, as Dan Kahan at the Yale Law School talks a lot about, um, or reinforcing whatever beliefs uh, you have in place. And so uh, when people are confronted with evidence that's inconsistent with uh, the things that they currently believe, either they can engage in motivated reasoning and dig in and sort of try and discount that evidence, or they could engage in more classical reasoning and sort of update their beliefs accordingly. And so I think where a lot of the sort of uh, the the frontier of work on this uh, is right now is trying to understand what are the situations in which you get motivated reasoning and what are the situations in which you get more classical reasoning. So I'm I'm guessing that a person's personality also has something to do with that, correct? Like some people might be um, have more tendency to engage in motivated reasoning. Some people might be more um, just based on you know how, um, their personality, where they grew up. They might be more have the tendency to do this more traditional reasoning. Is it possible for people to sort of step outside what their tendency might be? And how do you how do you get somebody to step outside that tendency? It's actually a really interesting question. There's a lot of work on differences, uh, what we call individual differences, that are differences between people in their tendency to engage in reasoning at all versus not engaging in reasoning. Um, But there's actually not that much work that I'm familiar with, at least, uh, that says um, once you engage in reasoning, are some people more likely to go down the motivated reasoning route than others? And I'm sure that that's true. yeah, so I don't. I think we don't really know the answer, or I at least don't know the answer uh, to that question. But in terms of the more basic question of do people engage in reasoning at all, uh, or do they just go with their first response? There is a good amount of evidence that there are clear, stable individual differences where some people really are just more inclined to stop and think than other people. <clears throat> Excuse me. And although that tendency is related to uh, sort of cognitive ability, that is how good you are at reasoning once you actually decide to reason, it is a separate thing. And so you could have some people that are really don't like reasoning that much and don't do like are sort of inclined not to think. But when they do, they're good at it. You can also have people that are really inclined to to reason, even though when they start reasoning, uh, they don't necessarily come to the right conclusion. And so there is a good amount of evidence that Basically, just like telling people to think more carefully uh, in one way or another can get them to be more inclined uh, to engage in reasoning. And then the question is, in a given setting, is that going to be helpful or harmful? And it's going to depend on whether it's a setting that activates um, motivated reasoning or not. And so I guess the research that I'm familiar with Uh, has focused more on the situation, that is what situations cause uh, motivated reasoning uh, versus classical reasoning rather than which individuals are more inclined to engage in motivated reasoning or classical reasoning. So let's let's talk about journalism. How I mean, you know, I know you've you studied a lot of social media, which is has a, is sort of a sister of journalism in, in some ways in terms of getting information to people. But can you can you speak to how journalism as as a medium to convey information plays a role in this, in how people might engage with uh, news stories on social media? How do, how does you how do you find that their reasoning plays out in that context? So. 
I think that the there's there's a lot of evidence that the way people's reasoning plays out depends on the topic. Um, and so, for example, there's evidence that uh, for political issues that are very important for one's uh, cultural identity, uh, you get motivated reasoning. So, for example, in the context of climate change, uh, Dan Kahan and others have work showing that um, people that are more engaged in reasoning, people that are more science literate, uh, people that are more educated, uh, rather than being more likely to believe in uh, climate change, they're more likely to believe the thing that their party uh, or their ideology stipulates. So among Democrats or liberals, uh, more science-educated people are more likely to believe in climate change, but among conservatives or Republicans, more uh, science-literate, educated, analytic-thinking people are actually less likely to believe in climate change. Um, and that's uh, explained by saying that belief in climate change or attitudes towards climate change are a really central feature of uh, current sort of ideological identities in the U.S., um, whereas other political issues, which are equally political, but just like not uh, so uh, tied up in the party identities, uh, don't show this kind of a motivated pattern. Um, so I think that that is, is one clear element. Uh, and um, I think in terms of your question about the role of, of journalism or journalists, uh, I think another thing is that... Um, when people read news content, uh, what, the extent to which they engage in reasoning or not, I think, is influenced by the content itself. And so in particular, uh, you know, there's a reasonable amount of work showing that emotion and sort of emotionally triggering uh, writing and topics and stuff like that tends to get people to be less likely to think uh, carefully and engage in reasoning, but instead just kind of respond in an automatic, intuitive way. Um, and I mean, the problem is that is also the kind of writing that gets clicks. Mm. Uh, and so I think there's a fundamental tension here that is created by a lot of the social media atmosphere. I mean, the same things were true to some extent in the content of print media. I think it's just way more extreme in the context of social media, which is uh, everyone is, you know, is chasing clicks, and the things right. that get people to click are not the same things that get people to critically engage. Right, right. Um, I'm glad you brought up climate change. That's something we're going to talk about in the last segment of the show. Um, I want to ask just quickly uh, before we move on to um, something called the illusory truth effect, which has this very Orwellian sort of tone <laughs> to it. But I want to ask you quickly. You, you know, you, you mentioned climate change on the right. I'm wondering, is this? Do you see the same sort of bias among intelligent people on the left when they're confronted with thing, um, scientific issues that are traditionally hot button issues on the left, things like vaccines or GMOs? Do you see the same sort of um, uh, propensity to ignore information that would challenge their beliefs on those things, even though the science shows that, you know, a certain thing, but their beliefs say because they're aligned with their party that, you know, they're not going to listen to that. Is it? Do you see yeah, the there, there is evidence on both sides of the of the aisle. It's not a sort of conservative specific uh, thing. So let's talk about this illusory truth. Although effect. actually, yeah. hold on. Something that occurs to me is we have we have these results. We haven't uh, we haven't written this up yet, um, but we've consistently found over a bunch of studies that uh, there is an asymmetry between Democrats and, or let's say between liberals and conservatives in um, how they interact with uh, news stories that are uh, sort of favorable to their party or favorable to the other party. 
and a lot of the work that we've been doing that uh, I'll talk about in a minute, I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, is, um, you know, is contrasting true stories with false stories or hyperpartisan stories, but putting apart the putting aside the false or hyperpartisan thing, saying just how do people judge the accuracy of true stories from legitimate news outlets? Um, we see this difference where the um, liberals in our studies uh, run again from a bunch of different uh, samples. Um, take the sort of pro-liberal uh, and pro-conservative real news equally seriously and sort of give equal accuracy ratings regardless of whether it aligns with their ideology or not, whereas the conservative uh, participants are much more uh, discounting of true stories that don't fit, uh, that don't align with their ideology. So we see more of this kind of motivated dismissal of true stories um, among conservatives than liberals. Mm. A lot to unpack in that, but we only got a, a few more minutes in the segment. So I wanted, I do want to get to um, the sort of illusory truth effect, which I, I guess you sort of alluded to in, in what you were just talking about, which is sort of this idea that um, when people are presented information, um, they tend to believe it, if, especially if it's repeated. Can you just maybe break down what that is actually? Can you just sort of expand that definition and tell me why that's something people should understand and pay attention to? Yes, yeah, so this is a really classic result in cognitive uh, psychology, um, which is that uh, basically just reading a statement makes you subsequently think it's more true, um, even if you uh, know actually that it's false. Uh, and the, this has been shown in prior work for basically even for 30 years of studies have more or less just looked at trivia questions of one sort or another, like the Atlantic is the largest ocean. So even if you know that's not true, reading it makes you think it's a little bit more true. Um, and so we did uh, a couple of big studies where we showed that this effect extends to uh, hyperpartisan uh, political fake news. So these stories um, that were circulating uh, during the election, for example, just reading those really crazy outlandish stories, even if they don't align with your ideology. So even if you're a Clinton supporter, reading totally false stories about Clinton, uh, just reading it subsequently makes you believe it a little bit more. And the reason that happens is uh, having seen something before makes it more familiar, and so when you see it again, it sort of pops to mind uh, more quickly. It's called more fluent uh, in the is what cognitive psychologists call it, and the brain at some very like low-level um, automatic way uses fluency as a cue for accuracy. Mm. So can you just tell us why it's <clears throat> so hard to sort of break down some of these barriers, How why it is for people who are presented evidence um, to the contrary of something. I mean, you talked a little bit about the cognitive processes that you know sort of get in the way of doing that, but are there sort of methods that journalists can engage in? You mentioned sort of cues to get people to think uh, more critically, but how, I mean, how likely, what would that look like practically? Is that something you would, you would write at the head of your, your article, like make sure you read this critically? I mean, what sort of, how, how does this actually practically work? sort of in, in a, or how could it work um, in a newsroom? Yeah, so I think that one thing that I should say before I answer that is that um, I think a, a critical thing is that although there is evidence of these motivated reasoning type processes in the context of big issues like climate change, uh, when it comes to analyzing uh, the accuracy of specific news stories, our work suggests that there is not motivated reasoning going on that much, at least in terms of differentiating fake stories versus true stories. What we find across a lot of studies is that 
Um, people are actually better at differentiating uh, true from false for stories that align with their ideology. So specifically where they have a motivation to believe, that's actually where they're better at telling fake from real. They're less likely to fall for fake news. And people that are more likely to engage in reasoning are better at differentiating fake from real, even for stuff that aligns with their ideology. <clears throat> so even when you're motivated, uh, you just like thinking more critically makes you better at telling fake from real. So basically for, for misinformation and fake news, we find a different pattern from what's been found for climate change. And what it suggests is it's just getting people to more critically engage with the news when they're, when they're reading it is just a good thing. And there's no sort of complication of, oh, well, maybe it's going to make them more defensive or engage in more motivated reasoning or whatever. It seems like no, it's just getting people to think more is desirable. Um, and so we're running studies now where we basically give people reminders of the concept of accuracy and show that it makes them more discerning. So uh, basically just like asking them, how accurate do you think a given headline is, gets them into an accuracy mindset. And then when you show them more headlines, uh, makes them more likely to just think, oh, well, hmm, how accurate is this actually? Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, one thing that uh, that can be done in a practical sense, and this is more easily implemented by social media platforms than it is by journalists, although I think journalists can do an analogous thing, is basically um, reminding people about the concept of accuracy. So, you know, you can do survey, you can periodically give people little like surveys, little fun pop quiz. Hey, you know, how accurate do you think this thing is? Test your accuracy knowledge, whatever. You keep doing these things. And, you know, uh, newspapers can do this kind of stuff on social media also using their, their social media accounts. Basically, you know, you can try and gamify it or something like that, but basically get people to be thinking about accuracy um, and remembering the concept of accuracy. So that's one thing. Um, but another thing that arises from this illusory truth effect, uh, that is the thing where just hearing a statement makes you subsequently believe it more, is it's, I think it's extremely important when journalists are covering lies, that is people saying false statements, for example, the president saying things that are just blatantly not true. Uh, it, it is incumbent upon the journalist to not repeat the statement rather than saying Trump inaccurately says and then say some lie that he said. Rather than doing that, I think what you want to do is you want to state the true statement. You know, you, you could say like, you know, contrary to, a, to Trump's claim and then say the real thing. And then you're exposing people to the true information rather than re-exposing them to the false information. Um, and there's a bunch of evidence that suggests that this kind of uh, familiarity backfire effect uh, is something that can happen with uh, from corrections a lot, where if you issue a correction that restates the original falsehood and then says it's not true, uh, that can uh, often have, either it undermines the effectiveness or it actually backfires. Could saying, though, saying something like contrary to Trump's statement and then saying the true thing, could that also have a backfire effect? Could people also say, oh, well, what did Trump say? Could that incite them to say, oh, now we really want to know what he said? Or, or is that, that not, you don't find that in, in your research? I mean, it could be. But if you if you don't do it that way, then that is if 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 that's what happens, then they have to exert work to go and find out right. what he said. Whereas the other way, you just give it to them immediately. Right. right. So, you know, it's at least cutting. It's reducing the extent to which they're seeing the false statement. 
So this is where we live. I'm David DeRoshan for Lucy Now Potential. We're going to take a break. Um, we've been speaking with MIT professor David Grant about his work around how people decide to believe certain things over others, regardless of what the evidence shows. After the break, we'll be joined by a journalist who says that news outlets are far too often tend to oversimplify complex topics and how this kind of practice has a significant and often immediate impact on how people of opposing beliefs relate to each other. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. David Rand, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was, my, it was a lot of fun. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about journalism and the news media and what journalists can do to encourage less polarization and more civility. Here to talk about one perspective on this is Amanda Ripley. She's a writer and contributor to The Atlantic. Her recent article for Solutions Journalism is called Complicating the Narrative. Amanda, welcome to Where We Live. Hi, thanks for having me. So Amanda's on the West Coast time, so thanks for uh, abandoning your uh, your bed to join us this morning. You can also join us uh, by calling 860-275-7266, email where we live at WNPR.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're talking about journalism. And Amanda, I read your article. I think it was fascinating. A lot of really interesting points. You, you, uh, you touched on some things that I think I have intuitively felt for a long time, but you really articulated it in a new way that was refreshing. So I'm glad you're able to talk about this with us today. Um, can you just tell us what sparked this article for you and um, what sort of uh, things did you learn as you went about uh, reporting it? Well, you know, after the 2016 election, I really felt like, you know, journalists needed to reevaluate what we were doing because you know, we just, we've lost the trust of the public. We've lost, we lost it before the 2016 election, but mm. it just seemed really clear that country was so divided about what was even true. Um, and what I saw was a lot of my colleagues, particularly in the national media, just doubling down on what we'd always done, just feeling like they were, you know, more important than ever. And, uh, <laughs> and that we needed to just be objective seekers of truth. And if we laid out the facts, the American public would, uh, would come around and, and see, see our truth. And, and that just didn't feel right. Um, I started talking with David Bornstein at the Solutions Journalism Network. And he suggested that I spend a few months really hanging out with people who understand conflict, how the brain behaves in very polarized situations, people like conflict mediators, psychologists, researchers, even rabbis, priests, people like you know, lawyers who deal with human conflict all the time and deal with it differently than journalists do. And is there anything we could learn from these people that we aren't already trying in an effort to you know, listen better and be heard. Hmm. One of the things you say, and it's sort of inherent in the in the title, complicating the narratives. You say journalists need to learn to amplify contradictions, which I, I found fascinating because I feel like and another thing you point out is journalists often, when they find something that complicates the narrative, they tend to ignore it because it complicates their story. It's easier to, if you just have sort of two sides to navigate, rather than looking for um, you know things that conflict with the narrative. Can, can break that down a little bit more. And what, how did you? How do, would you suggest journalists go about? Um, amplifying contradictions or seeking out contradictions or things that are, um, add complexity or complicate the narrative? Yeah, one of the more interesting interviews I did, and by the way, they were all way more interesting than I thought. Like, I should just admit up front that I didn't think I had that much to learn from conflict experts. <laughs> yeah. you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. Right. I, I feel like I am a conflict expert. Well, 
it turns out I was wrong, and there's a lot that I had to learn. So um, it was it was probably the most professional growth I've experienced in a decade. Mm. Um, so so it was really it was really eye-opening. And one of the interesting interviews was with a woman who had been a journalist for many years on Capitol Hill, which is sort of ground zero for the kinds of motivated reasoning and, <laughs> and right. fake news and lots of things we're talking about today. And then she became a mediator. So this is someone who helps people um, come to solutions who are you know, at each other's throats and different maybe in custody cases or labor disputes. And one of the things she said that I always think about is, you know, if I would, if she said, if I were to go back to journalism, I would spend less time trying to be clever and get the perfect quote and make the perfect ending. And I would spend more time focused on all the things that didn't fit, mm. all the things that, you know, just kind of when you, you know this, right? When I do this, right. you're doing an interview and the person says something that's not not quite what you were hoping they would say, doesn't really cohere with your narrative arc, and you actually stop typing or writing, usually, if you're mm. taking notes. And um, one of the things that's important here is that people notice that. People notice when you stop taking notes. And the other thing that's more, maybe more important is uh, that you're missing something that might, be, might actually make the story more interesting and certainly more true. Mm. And so you, you talk a lot about um, you know seeking complexity and how you um, met with a lot of conflict mediators. Um, one of the things you did was you met with uh, the Difficult Conversations Lab at Columbia. Now this is fascinating. I really love what you did here. So talk a little bit about what they do, and you actually you participated in the lab also, correct? Yes, this was this was fun. So there's a place, like a sort of windowless, hard-to-find room at Columbia University called the Difficult Conversations Lab, and it was started by a professor named Peter Coleman and his colleagues about a decade ago. And this is a place that literally intentionally generates the kind of awkward, painful, tense conversations that most of us spend every Thanksgiving trying to <laughs> avoid. Right. And uh, so they, they they bring people together, they survey a bunch of people, and they ask them about hot-button issues like abortion or gun control, and then they pair people up based on their polarized opinions. And then they have them talk for about 20 minutes and see if they can come up with a statement they could both, in theory, put their names on and agree to. And uh, they record it and they analyze it and so forth. And, it, you know, as you might imagine, some of these conversations go so badly that they have to actually be shut down before the time is up. But others, a whole bunch of them, go much better. It's not that people agree, and this is really, really important. Uh, so I just want to pause here. It's not that, it's not that we want people to agree, right? It's, right? And the people who study complexity and, and conflict do not want people to agree. In fact, the opposite. They feel like conflict's really important to uh, everyone, to strengthening our communities. But what they find is in these better conversations, people were asking more questions. They would get frustrated, they would get impatient, but then they would cycle back to something a little more curious. So there was this dynamism, sort of this fluidity of the conversation that was absent in the more stuck, negative conversations, which just kind of spiraled. And so then they started studying, well, what, what is that? Why are some of these conversations going so much better? And there are different things that seem to matter, but they found over time they could actually they could actually create better conversations on purpose by essentially priming people for complexity. So sort of like your previous guest was talking about how you can prime people, you can kind of nudge people to remember the importance of accuracy. 
You can also do that with complexity. So if, if they had people before their difficult conversation, they had people read articles about some other hot-button issue, and if they gave them a version of the article that was a very traditional news article, like one side, the other side, then people would get in these negative, stuck, not-so-great conversations. And if they gave them more complicated articles that actually had the same information about a controversial issue, but they were more complex. As they, went, they went down one road and then down the other. And it's not to say they were incoherent. It was just more like multiple points of view as opposed to just two. And they kind of, to me, read more like an anthropologist's field notes as mm. opposed to the traditional story, which reads more like a lawyer's opening statement. Like, right. here's this side, here's the other side. And, uh, and, and we know that when you just give people two sides, that tends to leave them more entrenched in their own pre-existing point of view. So it's, it's, it's the traditional journalistic approach, and it's absolutely nonsense, basically, particularly right. for polarizing issues. So, so it's really encouraging that you can, you can help people have more complex and interesting and curious conversations. It's, and it's not that they walk away suddenly changing their mind. They walk away, though, more satisfied with the conversation. It's like they've been stretched intellectually or emotionally, and they've retained their core values, but they've also heard the other person and vice versa. I mean, that to me was the most profound takeaway when, uh, you know, understanding that just adding complexity has such an immediate, I mean, these people reading these stories and then immediately meeting to have this conversation. So reading that story had such an immediate impact on their interaction. I mean, that's, that's fascinating to me. I can only imagine what it's like if you're reading complex stories like that all the time. But then I guess it begs the question, how reasonable is that in the sort of hyper speedy, you know, uh, attention deficit generation where everything is super fast, headline driven, uh, you know, to your point, it, it, you know, if that is sort of the path that we need to take to sort of encourage a more civil dialogue, uh, how do we sort of navigate that within the realm of this, this, you know, sort of super fast, all, ever changing world that we're living in? Do you have any, I know that sort of might be out of your uh, expertise area, but did you talk to anybody who might who had anything to say about that? I think that's the exact challenge. And it's, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about is the fact that most people still get their political news from TV news. And TV news is an emotional medium. You know, it's, we've been talking as if people are reading their news, and they're not actually reading their news. And, yes, yeah, social media matters, but in surveys of how people got their pre-election news, six out of ten got, them from t- got it mostly from TV news. So their local TV news stations or big cable, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, And these are emotional, like anyone who works in TV will tell you, (laughs) this is about emotion. And that's why it can be so powerful, but it also can be so toxic, right? Because the cheapest, easiest, kind of, you know, most toxic way to get people's attention on TV is through this kind of really oversimplified conflict. So, So that said, I actually am a big believer that we haven't tried hard enough. Like I think, you know... I think there is an audience for more complicated, more interesting, more curious stories, including on TV, including on online. And I don't think we've done it enough because we're so used to our ways. People who work in these mediums do not like to change what they do, just like any other profession. So now I think people are really, I think we're going to see more and more people tune out the news. And so I think there will be hopefully some kind of incentive for more and more journalists to try something else to, you know, one way I think is the easiest way to really kind of shock people and get their attention quickly with something that is uh, complex is to do something counterintuitive. 
Mm. You know, like we have all these assumptions about each other. Again, I'm really speaking here about polarizing news. So we have all these assumptions. Democrats have assumptions about Republicans that aren't true. Republicans have assumptions about Democrats that aren't true. So shock people with the headline. You know, point out that, uh, so I have a friend named Perry Bacon Jr. who writes this great column called Secret Identity. And he just did a thing about this really interesting research about, like, Democrats wildly overestimate how rich Republicans are. Like, Democrats think that something like 44, they think that half of Republicans make over $250,000 a year. It's not true. Hmm. So, and, and vice versa, Republicans, you know, wildly misunderstand. They think, like, half of Dem- Democrats are African-American, right? Um, so there's things that both sides are misjudging. And that's kind of, it can be kind of fun. You can, like your previous caller said, a previous guest said, you can kind of uh, find ways to, you know, shock people and tell them things that they didn't expect. And mm-hmm. so that's one way to get their attention without really in-depth, long reading. Yeah, one thing you also pointed out, which you sort of have alluded to, is, um, I'm going to quote you here, Talking, this is, you're talking about journalists, so talking to people in high conflict is a piece of our clinical training that wasn't properly handled, and now we are dangerous. The result is not just boring TV, we're adding to the toxicity when we don't intend to. Now, I find that, I find that to be fascinating because you point out that as we have sort of stagnated as, as, a, as an industry and we continue to sort of do the same thing, doubling down, you also say, you know, we can't FOIA our way to, a, uh, I think, a better democracy or something like that. Um, you know, there are certain uh, aspects to our training that we were never given that we should probably seek out um, and figure out and and I don't want to throw Van Jones under the bus but um, and because we all do this we mentioned this before we all sort of tend to seek the narrative that we're looking for but you you, you pointed out that he did a um, uh, a sort of uh, town hall st- well not a town hall style he went to people's homes uh, Trump supporters homes and try to had conversations with them and try to sort of bridge gaps and I want to play a clip from uh, a woman he's talking to who sort of opens up um, and, and becomes emotional and then we'll talk about Van Jones's response one of my friends blasted me on social media and how can a mother who professes to so love her children support Trump who's a blah 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 and she called me two-faced and she just cut into me big time I lost a friend that I really liked and cared about and how did my mothering come into play with who I'm supporting for president like how dare you put me out there to be this evil individual Uh, it broke my heart and we don't have time to play Van Jones's response, but he essentially, be, uh, instead of and sort of asking her questions and probing deeply into into what she was feeling, he just sort of started um, to uh, give her a sermon. He says things like liberty and justice for all. Every American child is taught that, but they're never taught what it means. Conservatives are very concerned about liberty. And you, you point that out as, as a common sort of thing that journalists do. They sort of miss these cues to probe deeper. And just I want to get your thoughts quickly because we have to go to the break. But I want to just th- quickly on on um, on what journalists can do to sort of seek out cues so they have more meaningful interviews with, with the people they're talking to. Yeah, and not just journalists, but actually anyone. And this, this sounds like really obvious or squishy or something, but it's actually amazing how rarely we do this. Um, so when someone says something to you like that where they're revealing some vulnerability they're clearly upset, you have to show them you heard them. <laughs> if you don't, they will, not, they will not listen to whatever you say next. So I think Van Jones is to be credited for taking unusual efforts to try to talk to people across divides. I mean, he's a self-proclaimed liberal activist. But, you know, in response to this woman, he said nothing to recognize he had heard her. He didn't, you know, distill what she had said and play it back to her. He didn't share any personal stories of his own, even though just like all of us, he has lots of stories of feeling unfairly accused. 
you know, and in, you know, instead he sort of lectured her about liberals versus mm-hmm. conservatives. And that is a huge missed opportunity that I don't blame him for. I've done the same things in many right. conversations. And, and so it's something, though, that if you don't show people you heard them uh, and then try to relate to them through your own experience, you really miss an opportunity to get them to hear you and to listen. That's a very good point. So uh, this is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche in for Lucy Nalpothantial. We have to go to break, but we've been joined by author and journalist Amanda Ripley, whose piece is called Complicating the Narrative, and it asks the question, what if journalists covered controversial issues differently based on how humans actually behave when they are polarized and suspicious? We'll tweet out a link to that article. Join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, David. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, and for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about how hard it can be to penetrate the mind of someone who's going to believe something no matter what, and also how beliefs might taint a journalist's coverage and how reporters can make problems worse by oversimplifying things. We're going to turn now to science journalism specifically because that would be a place where facts should speak volumes. But we know that the politics of science has become a hot issue on both sides of the political spectrum. So to talk about science and how it's reported, we have Dr. Gavin Schmidt. He's a climate scientist at NASA and director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies. Uh, Dr. Schmidt, welcome to Where We Live. Uh, Hi. Thanks for having me. Dr. Schmidt is joining us by Skype, and joining us by phone is Lisa Friedman. She's a climate change reporter for The New York Times. Lisa, welcome to Where We Live. Hi. Thank you for having me. And listeners can join the conversation. Call 860-275-7266, or you can email wherewelive at wnpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Gavin, you, uh, I watched a video, a 20-minute Coursera video, where you talk about um, some of the challenges that scientists go through as they try to communicate research to the public, and specifically to journalists. Right. Um, one of your gripes is sort of the oversimplification or generalizing that we tend to do. Can you give an example of how a news organization might have taken this scientific study and just got it completely wrong, and how do you react when you see that? So there's been lots of examples like that. Um, generally speaking, uh, there's a there's a big difference between what uh, people who journalists who aren't on the beat uh, of environmental news all the time uh, perceive as being the big questions and what the actual questions are in the scientific uh, realm. And so when uh, when they'll approach a story, they'll see you know to what extent does it project onto uh, the the debate that they have in their mind, uh, which isn't really very realistic. And then things get twisted uh, a little bit. I mean, there was there was one famous case where. You know, there was a paper that reported um, uh, uh, a methane, which is a greenhouse gas that, that was coming from plants. Um, and the reporting on that was uh, was all, oh, methane is causing global warming. And, and really, it, it, it was 180 degrees away from what the truth of the uh, uh, of the story was. Uh, and so there's there's been lots of examples uh, like that, and and so kind of echoing uh, Amanda's uh, point earlier on, it, it's it's really the complexity and the nuances of the topic uh, that are the fascinating things. And when and when things get kind of projected onto a binary distinction, is climate change real? Are we causing it? Um, as opposed to like look at all these interesting things that are going on, all these different interactions, uh, then it does become more polarizing, and the uh, the audience. Uh, loses uh, loses uh, interest and uh, and that complexity. 
So, Lisa, I'm wondering, I'm going to put you on the spot. Have you uh, ever ma- maybe made a mistake? I mean, all journalists make mistakes um, in covering something um, related to science. And, uh, you know, I know sometimes scientists can be a prickly bunch, not necessarily the best at communicating. Um, what has been your experience dealing with scientists who come to you and say, hey, maybe you got this interpretation wrong, or hey, there's this other study that shows this other thing? Yeah, I absolutely have. I mean, most, you know, most reporters um, are probably English majors, right? We are not, we are not as, uh, as a group, scientists writing about science. We are lay people interpreting very difficult issues for, for our readers and, and our listeners. And, um, you know, and I think what Gavin gets to is, is very important. And I think one of the tragedies, frankly, of, of you know, today's news system is, is the loss of so many reporters at local newspapers because mm-hmm. what that has done essentially is taken away all of what would now be considered luxury beats at local papers, science reporters, health reporters, people who really got to know issues um, and the nuances and the complexities that Gavin is talking about um, and and are able to uh, to write about them in a smart way in, in their stories. You know, there's there's places like the Times where we now have uh, a, a, an eight reporter climate desk are incredibly unique. Um, mm. You know, we've we've devoted the resources to covering this incredibly complex topic with the the people and thoughtfulness that it deserves. But that that that's not happening everywhere is um, you know it's it's partly the fault of of reporters, but it's mostly the fault of a very difficult time that we live in where, you know, you've got, you don't have enough city hall reporters. And and so you, you know, you have reporters who are covering things on a tight deadline um, and maybe don't even have the space to to tell something with the complexity it deserves um, or the time to go to some of these seminars and, and, you know, learn some of these issues in a, in a deeper way. Mm. And Lisa, I, I just noticed that you have been covering a lot of uh, EPA Scott Pruitt. So now that he's gone, maybe you guys can turn your attention to something a little bit more uh, meaty, I guess. Um, but I know you have been doing some great work at the Climate Desk. So we're, uh, and, and to your point, it's, it's, it's nice to see a news organization like the New York Times putting some, um, some real resources behind that. Um, uh, Gavin, I wanted to ask you back in the early 2000s or just you know early, earlier in your career when you're dealing with journalists, are there sort of mistakes that were being made back then that maybe we're not making anymore? Or how has, have journalists improved at all in terms of their understanding of science or in terms of the questions they're asking you? Well, I mean, obviously, individual journalists uh, get better uh, over time, uh, almost all the time. But uh, but the but the news media as a whole, yeah. And I mean, we have seen some improvement on on the issue of climate change specifically. Um, you know, ten years ago, it was far more common uh, to see you know a scientific result and a scientist uh, put up either in a in a on a on a talk show or in a newspaper article, and then the uh, the counterpoint uh, was uh, was a lobbyist or a, a lawyer or a uh, you know, uh, the, quite frankly, a, a, a kook uh, who would uh, who would uh, claim that uh, all of that was rubbish and nothing was going on. You don't need to pay any attention to it. Uh, I, I remember there was a uh, there was like a you know like a year's worth of stories on climate change in the Washington Post, uh, all of which were triggered by interesting 
things in the science, uh, but uh, with every single one uh, kind of semi-rebutted uh, by a uh, by a lawyer from the Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, who knew nothing about the scientists, but who knew nothing about the science, but was just there to provide a a uh, uh, a, a, a balanced counterpoint uh, without adding anything to the conversation, without knowing anything about the details. Uh, so we're not seeing that so much uh, anymore. Uh, so I think that that's, that's a very positive uh, step. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, still the fa- it's still the case that uh, most of the time uh, the stories associated with, uh, with climate change are, are not very nuanced uh, and they're not very uh, – they don't go into the details – um, and, and that's uh, and that's still uh, regrettable. Mm. I want to read a Facebook quote from Melissa. She says, uh, journalists need to stop pre- presenting both sides of an argument with equally weighted validity when facts are at hand. If you present a side of an issue that is false, making uh, make pointing out that falsehood is part of the story. There aren't two sets of facts. There aren't two sets of facts. Sorry, I lost that quote. And I've been seeing lots of opinions presented as facts with no critical arguments against them. Uh, so, Lisa, I wondered if you could sort of respond to um, Gavin's point of um, of the count- point counterpoint that a lot of journalists tend to do um, is uh, and, and now with climate science being uh, or climate change essentially being settled, um, but still people pointing out that um, politically that it's a problem. How do you sort of navigate um, the political the politicization of science as you're reporting the science? How do you sort of present that and how do you sort of um, how do you navigate that sort of uh, those, those waters? Because it seems a little difficult. Sure. I mean, I, I would say it's been some years now that that you know most mainstream news organizations have stopped seeking out a you know a, a, a false equivalency on the science. Um, that said, there is you know a vast difference along the political spectrum about whether or how to address climate change. Now, sometimes those are intertwined. Um, um, You know, obviously, those who don't think there is a need to address climate change don't believe that climate change is happening. And and so you get at this issue that he's, you know, that's being discussed about whether to incorporate those views. Um, And I think it's it's a very hard balance to find, but it's one that journalists have to. Um, you know, one thing that I that I think about a lot and, and this might this might make Gavin upset, but uh, I you know, I think that there that somewhere along the way when we stopped seeking out when, when journalists stopped seeking out um, the opinions of you know, as as he calls them the kooks, we we lost our fingers on the pulse of a very real concern out there in the country about some of the regulatory moves that were happening in the government. Um, and, you know, it's been, you know, I, I look back at my own writing, you know, in 10 years or nine years or so, you know, I rarely reached out to um, folks who simply do not believe that climate change is, exists on a science story. And I believe that there was no need to. It's a factual science-based story. Um, on the other hand, these folks who question the science are now running the federal government. And so, you know, their view, whether scientists like it or not, is an essential one to understand and grasp and figure out what direction they are taking. Um, they're taking this policy ship. 
So, and, and okay. so let, let, me, ahead, let me interrupt. Sure. I mean, I, I have no yeah. uh, objection to uh, to anybody reporting on the movements uh, or the uh, underlying philosophy of uh, people who uh, who feel the need to deny science, um, but they don't belong in a science story. So, if you're, uh, you know, if if you want to understand uh, the 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 background of anti-regulatory uh, fervor uh, that's uh, in Oklahoma, say, then you should, of course, uh, investigate that and talk to whoever you like. But uh, you know, now that now that he's not member of the administration, Scott Pruitt's views on the science, uh, you know, they're totally that they're not they're not real, right? They're just uh, they're just uh, convenient. And if you're substituting opinions that people are just adopting for convenience as opposed to opinions that are firmly held or are being uh, or are being um, put forward in a, in a good faith manner then you're allowing your platform to be used by propagandists so i, I don't think that you should to have would in be a, you wanting know, in to do that where right? we do in stories where we do quote whether it is was scott pruitt or someone else who does not believe, uh, you know, accepted established climate science, um, you know, we always make a point of saying that in the story. We put forward what the scientific consensus is, um, you know, in, right. in, that same, in that same graph. Usually. Yeah, no, no, I, I, no, I'm not faulting you specifically. And, 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 I, and I think the New York Times Climate uh, Desk is, is doing a, a, a great job. Um, but you know, I mean, take take one of the examples that uh, that that he would often uh, use, uh, where he said, "Oh, well, we don't know precisely what the attribution is to uh, to climate change." Now, he's not citing any actual science uh, behind that. Uh, there was a FOIA request to EPA that actually asked, "Well, what's that based on?" And they couldn't respond because it's not based on anything. And so, when we quote that in the science piece, as if it's legitimate uh, scientific opinion, uh, when really it's just a uh, a talking point. Uh, we're doing everybody a disservice. All right, we just have to leave it there. We've got a lot to unpack. If you want to continue this conversation, you can go to Where We Live on Facebook and Twitter. Keep talking about this. I want to thank Carmen Baskoff for producing, Lydia Brown, Kion Wolf. I'm David DeRoshan for Lucy Napothanchel. Lucy Napothanchel, rather. I want to thank our guests, Gavin Schmidt and Lisa Friedman, for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you. And this thank is you. Where We Live. Thanks for joining us this morning.